My name is Anna Warberry. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of The Climate Briefing. I'm here today with Ben Horton. Hello, Ben. Hello, Anna. How are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm pretty disorientated, to be honest with you, because we are back in the Chatham House Media Studio. What? Yeah, I think it feels amazing. A bit strange, a bit lonely in general at Chatham House, but here in the studio, it feels great. It feels very similar to how we left it seven months ago, I guess. Yeah, that also goes for my desk upstairs, exactly as messy as I left it. Yeah, and I found lots of food in the drawers under my desk, which was a bit of a nightmare. But we're back in Chatham House, back from our summers as well, such as they were this year with all the disruption. And we're here to kick off a very exciting autumn season of the Climate Briefing. So Anna, what are we talking about this week? So in this episode, we're going to take a step back and look at how the climate negotiations have evolved over time, including looking at what the main challenges have been, what the main achievements have been, and how different countries have acted in the negotiations. And as with many other things, I think it's important to understand the past in order to understand the present. But Ben, you did the first interview. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So for this episode, I spoke to Professor Robert Faulkner from the London School of Economics, and he gave us a kind of historical broad sweep of the climate negotiations from sort of the middle of the 20th century up to Paris, the Paris Agreement in in 2015. He, he sort of gave us the main background, the trends that we've seen through these negotiations, what has worked in the past and what maybe have been the obstacles and the challenges to progress on climate change and just kind of set the scene really nicely for us. And then Anna, who did you speak to? So I spoke to Catherine Hochstetler, who is a professor of international development and the head of the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And our conversation focused on the role and uh, the priorities of developing countries in the climate negotiations. Lovely stuff. And before we get into those fantastic interviews, we should just say, as with many of the interviews that we've done over recent months, these were conducted over Zoom. And occasionally the sound quality is a bit tricky, but bear with it. It's absolutely audible, but just be aware that internet connections were occasionally a bit dodgy. But yeah, let's have a listen. All right, so today I'm delighted to be joined by Robert Faulkner. Robert is the research director of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment and an associate professor of international relations at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Robert, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ben, for having me. So in this episode, we're really going to be reflecting on the past of the international climate agenda, really thinking about the history and the origins. And that's where I'd like to begin. Could you tell us a little bit about where the international climate agenda came from? What were its origins? Yeah, it actually goes back quite some time. The first UN conference on climate happened in 1979. So that's as long as we've been debating climate change at the international level. And scientists had been building up to that conference for many years before accumulating scientific evidence of climate change. And even though the international community started debating this in the late 70s, it took another decade and a bit for the first treaty to be signed on climate change. This is known as the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, also known as UNFCCC, as the insiders call it. And that was signed at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. What's remarkable about that treaty is that it's universally accepted. Virtually all countries on this planet have committed to it and recognize that something needs to be done about climate change. And this has been the international commitment since 1992. The only problem with the treaty was there was quite a bit of resistance to implementing it in a more stringent way. And most of the major emitters also objected to the inclusion of specific targets. So the treaty from 1992, the very first climate treaty that's still relevant today, was a kind of a normative commitment by most emitters to do something to stabilize the global climate, but it didn't lead to any immediate action. It didn't have targets, so it needed another treaty to be negotiated after that. So who were the early drivers of this agenda and this movement? In the early days, so we're talking now the 1980s and 90s, 
It was largely an agenda driven by, first of all, scientists who warned us about the impending climate crisis. Environmental campaigners themselves took on the issue. And within the international community, it was largely countries from the industrialized north that put climate change on the international agenda. Many developing countries at that time either didn't feel they were threatened by it, but they also had other concerns, particularly to promote their own economic development. And they saw the climate agenda as somewhat remote. And so there was a bit of a north-south gap, initially at least, in the sense that it was industrialized countries, particularly in Europe, but also elsewhere, that wanted something to be done about it. And when we look at the negotiations of the Kyoto Protocol from 1997, so the first protocol to the treaty that I mentioned earlier, that was very much an affair between, say, European countries and the United States. And they took on the task of designing the regulatory regime that the 1992 UNFCCC had not completed. So in 1997, we get to the first regulatory framework, the Kyoto Protocols puts in place legally binding emission reductions, but they're aimed only at industrialized countries. And it was recognized at the time that historically, developing countries had contributed relatively little to the problem. And so they were exempted from taking mitigation measures. And the conflict then focused on the industrialized countries and their relative contribution to the mitigation effort. And this is a phenomenon that we still know today, that countries were very keen, besides making a general commitment to act on climate change, to keep their own national contribution relatively limited. And the Kyoto Protocol made some progress on that front. It was agreed that northern countries would cut back emissions by around 5% on average. So some countries would do more, some less. But even that wasn't very demanding. And in the end, the United States never acceded to that treaty. So a transatlantic gulf erupted between the European Union and the United States with the European Union wanting to implement the Kyoto Protocol and the US standing aside and refusing to ratify it. And that conflict between the US and the Europe very much defined the 1990s international negotiations. It's also worth noting that the Kyoto Protocol established a very strong version of an international justice and fairness principle. This is known as the common but differentiated responsibilities norm. And that was very much in recognition of that unequal responsibility between northern and southern countries. So the treaty was quite remarkable because it initially at least let off developing countries from mitigation contributions. It ensured, therefore, that it was broadly acceptable to the developing world, but that proved then to be the key stumbling block towards developing the treaty further. And the US always held up this very imbalanced situation as one of the main concerns why they didn't want to join the treaty. Just to pick up on that thread of the US involvement in this, you mentioned earlier that US governments have been involved in the climate process since its inception. But then as we sort of get more advanced into actual implementation of this framework, you say that they actually refuse to engage in a more practical, tangible way. Could you explain the reticence on that part of the US in in that sense? Why were they even part of the process to begin with if they didn't intend to follow through on it? The US originally signed on to the UNFCCC, the Framework Convention at the Rio Convention, with some reluctance, but it had secured a change in, in the nature of the treaty, which made sure that there were no legally binding obligations included. That changed as we approached the Kyoto Protocol negotiations, because now countries were determined to put into law certain commitments that could then be enforced up to a point. The enforcement mechanism wasn't very strong, but at least there was a legal obligation. And that's what the US government objected to. Or to be more precise, it was the US Senate that didn't want to take on any legally binding commitments. So even though the Kyoto Protocol was negotiated by the then Clinton administration and the administration was behind the treaty, it couldn't get the treaty through domestic ratification on Capitol Hill. There was huge resistance, partly also fueled by a fierce industry lobbying against the treaty. And the US and its economy were in a position at the time where they felt they couldn't take on 
what they thought of as costly emission reductions. The US is a geographically much larger country. It relies much more on domestic transport. Uh, some argued at the time it was also less efficient when it came to energy use. And so the costs for it seemed much higher. And that proved a difficult ask for the US Senate to take on. But what's more, the US was now starting to worry about that imbalance in global emission commitments. It began to perceive of China and India as the next big economic competitors, rising emerging powers that were soon going to challenge the US for global economic dominance. And a lot of American politicians felt they didn't want to commit to a treaty that exempted these countries. The European Union was much more willing to take on this imbalanced burden, and it had stronger domestic support for a more ambitious climate policy. There's a slight difference there in industry lobbying too, where European industries have been much more willing to go along with climate policies. So a certain transatlantic conflict erupted too within the business lobby. And that explains to some extent the diversions in paths. However, because the US had ratified the UN Framework Convention, it continued to negotiate and it continued to engage in the process. And virtually all governments in the United States, from Clinton to Bush Jr., Obama, of course, and then even Trump, have stayed inside the UN Framework Convention and have negotiated, though with varying degrees of commitment to taking tough action. Thank you. Now, I'd like us to move into the 21st century soon. But just before we do, I wanted to ask a question about climate science and the consensus around around this idea of man-made climate change. The way that you are framing this so far, it seems like the UNFCCC process has always had as a kind of implicit assumption that humans do contribute to climate change and that there are steps that governments should be taking to limit emissions. But when you listen to even debates today in some countries on a domestic political level, there are still parties and politicians who will question that science. So I suppose my question is, has that assumption always been accepted at the international level in this process that humans contribute to climate change? Or have we seen states making that case that the science isn't strong enough and that we don't know for sure that this is a thing? That's an interesting question. And what's unique about the climate regime is that the international community was very much aware of the need to underpin the treaty with a strong science base. To do that, they set up, even before they negotiated the first climate treaty, a separate body that would review the scientific evidence. This is called the Intergovernmental Body on Climate Change, IPCC. And that body, founded in 1988, has produced several major assessments of the available science that we have produced on, on this question. Five assessment cycles have already been completed. They're currently working on the next big round. And they've produced ever more detailed accounts of what we know about climate change and what the implications are. So in a sense, the whole process of negotiations has been, to some extent at least, driven by the scientific assessment exercises that the IPCC performed. And that knowledge has fed into the process. And what's interesting here is that from the beginning, scientists have made it very clear that global warming is man-made by and large. You can still debate to what extent there are natural forces that drive the process, but the large majority of, of the added warming that we've experienced in the 20th century is down to man-made causes. And if anything, the evidence for that has hardened. There's now, in the scientific community at least, no more debate about that. that there was a little bit of debate in the beginning and some countries reluctant to undertake demanding emission reductions, used scientific disagreements to their advantage. But interesting enough, over time, all countries, whatever their position on, on mitigation measures, have come on board and have accepted the scientific basis for acting on climate change. Even the United States, despite what the current president may have said or tweeted about this subject, is officially at least committed to accepting the global consensus. Now, all major admitters are on board. However, what's interesting too is that the negotiations, although they were informed by science, have not been determined by the scientific evidence. So scientific appeals for urgent actions have been routinely ignored. And what countries focus on in the negotiations is much more the distributional burden and the cost of taking action. 
And so countries made, on the one hand, a commitment to acting on climate change based on the available signs, but then fought tooth and nail so as not to be overburdened in, in, in their national contributions. And that's been the fundamental problem in the climate negotiations. The scientific evidence for rapid and urgent action is overwhelming, but states still fight very hard and against taking action. And then that's been uh, a conundrum that we have not been resolved. The scientific evidence is gathering for uh, urgent action. We know that we need to keep warming, not just to two degrees, potentially to 1.5 degrees, but we're not on that pathway yet. Who do you think should be responsible for solving that conundrum? Do you think that there is actually a role for the science community to play in trying to work out how the costs of changing this picture for states can be reduced, how they can incentivize states to actually follow through on these commitments. That's an interesting point, because what it raises is this perception, I think that that perception is right, that the scientific debate, in the natural science at least, is now more or less settled on the question of whether climate change is happening and, and what a negative impact it'll have. But what's still very much an open question is how much it'll cost us to cut back on emissions and what kind of benefits we will derive from reduced emissions and therefore from a much reduced climate change effect. In that debate, which, which started much later, we've made some progress back in 2006. Nicholas Stern, professor at the LSE, Lord Stern, who was then a government advisor, produced a path-breaking report, the so-called Stern Review, on the costs of climate change. And he showed for the first time quite convincingly that it would actually, in the long run at least, be cheaper to reduce emissions because it would then reduce the negative uh, repercussions of climate change for the global economy, for health, for prosperity overall. And I think that's where in the mid to late 2000s, we see a shift in the debate where more and more countries are accepting the argument that it pays to reduce emissions, to take mitigation actions now rather than wait and delay and, and dither over this topic. But each and every country needs to carry out this cost assessment for itself. And that's where different countries face different costs of action. Countries that are highly reliant on fossil fuel production and exports, say the Middle East countries, they've been most reluctant to accept this kind of argument. They insist that they need to continue to burn fossil fuels and export them for as long as they can, because that's what their economies depend on. Likewise, countries that have huge coal reserves have been very reluctant to accept the argument that we need to shut down coal, which is one of the most polluting forms of fossil fuels in the energy sector. So countries know that collectively we would be better off taking action, but individually they still find it doesn't always pay. And of course, politicians, state leaders, time horizons tend to be often shorter than electoral cycles, not more than two, three years. And that's what makes it so difficult to lock in the long-term benefits of climate action when in the short run, the costs prevail. Thank you very much. Okay, so I'd like us now to move up closer to the present day. I wondered if you could just say something about how the negotiations developed over the course of the early 21st century from the implementation of Kyoto and then up to this Paris Agreement, which we've been speaking so much about on the climate briefing this year. Could you maybe fill in the gaps in between those two kind of landmarks? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So the Kyoto Protocol, which suffered from America's refusal to ratify the treaty, nevertheless came into force in 2005. It took a long time for it to enter into force. But eventually it did, and the European Union led those efforts to have it ratified and, and for it to be implemented. The European Union established the first regional emissions trading system in order to implement the Kyoto Protocol. And gradually, more and more countries developed domestic laws and domestic uh, instruments to reduce their emissions in line with the Kyoto Protocol. Some countries failed to meet their targets, Australia, for example, Canada too. Russia was benefiting from a decline in emissions due to deindustrialization after the end of the Cold War. It didn't have to make a particular effort, but it, it was able to reduce its emissions. But many countries struggled to meet their obligations. And gradually, particularly with the US not being part of the agreement, but also China, India and other emerging economies not having to cut back emissions, the Kyoto Protocol approach fell out of favor. More and more industrialized countries felt they didn't want to take on that burden 
into the future as other countries didn't have to or refused to make the effort. And so the search was on from about 2006-7 onwards for a, a successor treaty to Kyoto. The first conference to negotiate such a treaty was held in 2009 in Copenhagen. Huge expectations existed for this treaty to, to be created, but the conference almost collapsed at the end, no agreement could be reached, and Copenhagen marked a downturn in the international process on climate change. Many felt this, we had reached the lowest point in the negotiations. But interesting enough, it also provided for a turning point, this conference. Copenhagen offered a way out of the deadlock because at the end of the conference, right at the end, some of the heads of states who had refused to sign on to a new Kyoto-type agreement simply moved to a separate room and hammered out a small, relatively informal political agreement in which they laid out the architecture for a new type of agreement, which we now have in the form of the Paris Agreement. And this agreement is now based on a very different kind of logic, a logic of not internationally negotiating legally binding targets, but accumulating domestic pledges which are much more voluntary in nature. And so the international community faced with a massive dilemma because most of the emitters that matter didn't want to go down this route of legally binding agreements, simply agreed to move over to voluntary bottom-up type pledges. And so the Paris Agreement, in a sense, grew out of this shift in 2009-2010, and it, in a sense, saved the process from failure. But of course, it's now a very different type of regime, no longer one that works with international commitments that can then be enforced, but it's now based on voluntary commitments. And so the Paris Agreement marks the beginning of a very new approach, but one that many argue is more realistic, less ambitious in some ways, but more realistic because it's much more in tune with how most countries view their own personal commitments, their own country's commitments to this process. Before we go into a bit more depth on the Paris Agreement itself, I just wondered if you could also bring in here a bit of insight into the role that one of the other major players in in this process has taken, which is obviously China. We've spoken already about the US and its approach to the negotiations. Could you tell us something about how China has approached the UNFCCC process? Yes, China is, of course, now seen as the critical player in the climate field. But that wasn't the case early on, because in the 1990s, China played a backseat role in the negotiations. It had no evident interest in the negotiations, except it felt compelled along with G77 countries to go along with it. But it had secured an exemption from the Kyoto Protocol, along with all the other developing countries. It didn't have to take any mitigation measures. That suited China, India, and all the other emerging economies well. And they fought for a long time to preserve that exemption from legally binding mitigation measures. They always insisted that industrialized countries had to go first, And only when the North acted would the South follow suit with its own efforts to cut down on emissions. The problem for China was, however, that thanks to the economic liberalization policies of the 1990s and 2000s, its economy boomed. Uh, It became a massive emerging economy with growth rates of 10% or more year on year. And that led to a ballooning of its emissions. By 2006, China had become the biggest emitter in the world, overtaking the United States. And it's now estimated that China, as of 2018, contributes about 28% of global CO2 emissions, compared to only 15% for the United States. So China is now the great outlier. It's the leading contributor to global climate change. And so it's it's clear that China had to undergo a certain political transition as well, where it had to move away from its original developing country position that defended its, its opt-out from mitigation measures towards one position where it made a dedicated contribution. And that proved to be very difficult. It still held back in Copenhagen, resisting a push to put on the table specific targets for emission reductions or limitations. And by Paris, it had come around to the idea that China needs to be on board with some form of mitigation measure. And so China's shift in those years was critical to the success of the Paris Agreement. 
though we should add that China's contribution is in the form of reduced emissions intensity. It has not as yet promised to reduce emissions, but it has promised that it will see a peak of emissions, a slowdown and then a final peak of emissions in the not so distant future. And that goes for all developing countries who have been asked to make a contribution to mitigation by reducing their emissions intensity and approaching a gradual decline of the rise in emissions. There's an important difference here between how developing countries, including China, views this. But the encouraging sign is that China has taken this very seriously and has worked very hard on bringing its emissions growth down. And we now expect emissions to stop growing. It used to be thought it might be by 2030. That was brought forward to 2025. And it may well be that China is able to see a peak, uh, bring in a peak of emissions much earlier than that. So progress has been made. Interestingly enough, China has also come out very strongly in support of the Paris Agreement after Donald Trump declared uh, the US exit from Paris. And so we see almost a role reversal here where China has declared some form of climate leadership and the US is, is threatening to walk away from the agreement. That doesn't mean China is providing the kind of leadership that it ought to provide. It needs to do much more. But of course, compared to the US, its, it's strategic rival in many other fields of international politics, China is in a much better position now, making contributions that the US is simply refusing to do. And that's where perhaps my concern lies for the future. The US and China, the two largest emitters, need to be in alignment on climate change for this to work. If the two are not working closely together, as they did in the run-up to the Paris Agreement, then I, I fear the international process will be held back by that. Just to reiterate that and follow up on that, do you think that there is any way that the international process can continue and can achieve progress if China and the US are not completely invested or not completely in the room? Does it really depend on those two? The fundamental problem in climate mitigation is that all the major emitters, we're talking here of perhaps a handful of countries, China, the United States, the European Union, India, Russia, Japan, we can add Indonesia or Brazil if we take their forests into account as well. So let's say a good handful to seven or eight countries are needed to act on this challenge. They are responsible for a good two-thirds of global emissions. And if they work together, then we can get this problem under control. However, it takes just one or two major emitters not to participate in the collective effort for the whole international regime to start coming apart. Because what's essential to effective climate mitigation is trust between the major emitters. We have no mechanism to enforce climate emission reductions. There's no way we can punish countries with the Paris Agreement if they don't act on this threat. So trust is of essence. And if only one or two major emitters don't act, don't bring their emissions under control, that reduces the incentive for other countries to do the same. And that means there's a kind of inbuilt logic of collaboration or competition between those major emitters. They either collaborate and work together, signal to each other that they're willing to go down the path of emission reductions, which then creates moral and political pressure on others to act. But if only one of them, say the United States or China, walks away from this, that reduces that pressure. It might even create a downward spiral in the Paris Agreement, incentivizing other states also to do less. So there's real threat here if either China or the US don't act in the way they have committed to in the past or that we need them to act. And so that relationship is critical, but it's not the only relationship. The European Union is still a significant player in this, somewhat reduced in its power and influence, partly because its own emissions have gone down relative to other countries. India is a fast rising emitter, so India's role will be very critical here. But even here, there are good signs that India is taking this challenge seriously, investing heavily in solar energy, and is of course keen to wean itself off fossil fuel energy imports. So the incentives are there for each and every country to do the right thing. But I think we need that reinforcement within the international community that other major actors are following suit. Thank you very much, Robert. So I just have one more question, actually, which now is sort of looking ahead at what is to come and the COP26 conference, which will be happening in 2021, we hope, pandemic pending. 
I just wondered if you could take a look over the history that you've that you've so clearly laid out there and tell us the sort of lessons that you think the organisers of COP26 should be taking into account. What does the history of international climate negotiation teach us about how to get progress on this topic? There are two views on the role of organisers. If you zoom out and look at the broader historical trends in climate politics, then it seems organisers of conferences can do very little because the forces of history are at work energy interests, commercial interests, industrial interests, they really shape and determine country positions. And if they're not aligned, then it's very difficult for any conference organiser to bring countries together to act. We saw this in in the run-up to Paris, where more and more countries were beginning to realise that renewable energy is getting cheaper, that technological advances will reduce the mitigation burden, and that helped to facilitate a positive outcome. So if, if those broad forces are in alignment, then it's possible to get a positive outcome from a conference. If not, it's difficult. That's one view. Then there's the other view, which says, even though it's difficult to shape these broad forces, a well-managed conference and a well-managed preparation process could still make a difference. And this is where it'll be critical for the UK government to play its hand well in the run-up to COP26 next year. Because as we saw in in the Paris Agreement in 2015, the then French chair of the conference played a very critical role, prepared the ground, reached out to a lot of countries in the year before the conference, built coalitions around ambitious targets, making it possible for countries to come together. They put in an enormous and very successful effort, and they made a big difference to the outcome in Paris. Of course, the effort was pursued by a wider group of countries. It wasn't just France, it was the whole European Union and other countries that joined in that effort. So the key challenge for the British government is, of course, not just to prepare the ground, to reach out to all the key constituencies in the climate negotiations, north, south, east, west, but also to draw on more countries in Europe and and other countries to help in that effort. And I think the British government will need to make allies and will make those allies very soon that can help it to bring together different factions in the negotiations. So in that sense, the next year is critical and, and the British government needs to show that it takes this case seriously. Where perhaps we've suffered in the process is, is first of all, the delay of the event that has taken some of the steam out of the preparations. It's given us more time, but also it has taken the pressure off countries. And of course, the pandemic hasn't helped because that's really distracted most politicians. Uh, They all have other priorities to deal with now. There's a broad commitment to a green recovery after the pandemic, but that doesn't mean that countries will be in a strong position to also make strong commitments in the next round of climate mitigation commitments. So so it's a difficult challenge for the UK government to chair this conference, but um, it will need to invest in it and will need to act soon. The earlier it gets its act together on that, the better. Robert Fortner, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So I'm here today with Catherine Hostetler, who is Professor of International Development and Head of the Department of International Development at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Catherine, thank you so much for speaking to us. I'm very happy to be here. So in this interview, we're going to focus on the role and priorities of developing countries in the UN climate negotiations, both historically and now. And I thought I'd start by asking you a question, which I guess is quite basic, but which feels important in order to set the scene. Do all developing countries participate in the UN climate negotiations? And if so, has this always been the case? Yeah, it's the case that pretty much all developing countries are part of the climate negotiations. And part of that is because the climate negotiations didn't begin until 1990. So by then, there'd already been two decades of global environmental negotiations on various topics. And most countries were participating. But I think you have to ask them, what does it mean to participate? Because some of the developing countries bring only two or three representatives to these international negotiations. And if you've ever seen the schedule of the climate negotiations, there can be 30 things going on at once. And so if all you've brought as a delegation with two or three people, you don't have a lot of influence on the negotiations. And the big delegations have hundreds of people, and they can send multiple people to all of these negotiations. So while they're there, they're not necessarily there in the kind of weight of 
the developed countries. But I'm often amazed that countries that are undergoing civil war or thought to be failed states are still often participating in these negotiations, submitting their national documents. And I think that says something about the priority that they place on these negotiations. Interesting. I guess that kind of links to my next question, which is about how developing countries organize themselves in the UN climate negotiations. There are, for instance, different negotiating groups. We have the G77, the African Group of Climate Change Negotiators, the LDC Group, and so on. Could you please tell us a little bit about these groups? Sure. So I just said that many of the developing country delegations are quite small. And As a result, one of their strategies since the very beginning of global environmental negotiations has been to come as a group to these negotiations. And that's true in the climate negotiations as well as in all others. And the most important of the developing country groups is the G77 in China, which is 134 countries. And it actually dates back to the 1960s or 1970s. It's a very old grouping and it basically reflects this fact the developing countries often feel like they don't have the same kinds of resources and weight in international negotiations. And so if they band together and bring their demands together, that gives them a strength that they don't have on their own. And when you look at the history of the climate negotiations, you find the G77 then really critical from the start. But it's a strange body because on the one hand, it includes very poor African states, for example. On the other hand, it includes quite wealthy Gulf states, oil producers. And many of these countries really do not share common interests. And so when you ask yourself, what are the common interests of the G77? You have to turn to things like saying that they are really concerned with their status in the negotiations. So they make a lot of procedural demands for paying attention to their common agendas. They also share an agenda that says that developed countries should be helping them to develop and should be compensating them for when they take on global environmental agendas. And those are issues that I would say from 1972 and the Stockholm Conference on the Human Environment to 2020, these are issues that developing countries have in common. And the G77 really stands for those kinds of issues. But starting with the Copenhagen Conference in 2009, developing countries really began to split. And this was the first conference where on the one hand, you found the basic countries, Brazil, China, India, South Africa, these bigger, faster growing, more prominent countries under a lot of pressure to now start actually taking a role in reducing emissions. This set of countries starts to negotiate together. They don't stay together very long, although they continue to meet regularly and confer. But it's this first moment when you have a set of developing countries that really are pulling themselves out or are being pulled out of the G77 for special treatment and special roles because they are also major emitters. At the same time in 2009, you have the appearance or the the really strong presence of the Alliance of Small Island States, AOSIS, and then the small island developing states within that of countries that are beginning to see very clearly in 2009 that climate change is going to be incredibly destructive to them. And so they want everyone, including the basic countries, including themselves, including everyone, to be part of reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And the African countries have also commonly worked together they're really trying to strategically present the common interests of their continent. And they really have become one of the actors that's been demanding more climate action because they see themselves as quite vulnerable collectively to climate change. And that's a grouping that often negotiates together, as does AOSIS, as did BASIC temporarily. And then the other really important group that I would pull out, or two other really important groups that I would pull out, one of them is the like-minded developing group. And the main set of concerns that the like-minded developing group has in common is that they continue to insist in 2020 that most climate action should be done by developed states. And they are the ones who are most likely to bring continuously demands that developed states are not living up to their commitments, that they 
had made commitments for finance, that they had made commitments to reduce their own emissions that they're not doing. And this includes countries like China and India again, also Saudi Arabia, Malaysia, countries which in many cases don't share interests in common particularly, except for the fact that they can agree that the United States and Europe and Japan and countries like that should be acting rather than them. And then the last set of countries that I would single out is not so much because they're a negotiation block, but because they're increasingly recognized as being developing countries that perhaps have special vulnerabilities or special claims on the global negotiation process. And this would include the least developed countries, that's a UN designation for especially vulnerable, poor countries that have a lot of vulnerabilities, not just to climate change, but also to economic shocks and other environmental shocks. And then what are often called in the UN negotiations that the most vulnerable states, but whereas the least developed countries is a clearly defined set of countries that the UN itself designates, what it means to be one of the most vulnerable states is very much in dispute. And in fact, a country like Saudi Arabia, for example, would would call itself one of the most vulnerable states because it has an entire economic model based on oil, which the climate negotiations want to make worth nothing. And so you have many countries putting in a claim for being especially vulnerable. And so that's a really contested category and it's kind of more part of a discourse of why it is that they deserve special treatment and special consideration in the negotiations. So wondering if we could pick up a little bit on the special treatment aspect. There is this principle of common but differentiated responsibilities and respective capabilities in the climate negotiations. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Ah, yes, the famous CBDR, um, so well known in the climate negotiations that it really has become a stand-in for a set of ideas about, as you say, that there are common responsibilities, but that they're differentiated. But I think the thing to understand about CBDR when it's invoked is that it's usually invoked by countries that want it to mean what it did in 1992. And what it meant in 1992 and in the Kyoto Protocol was that there was one set of countries in the world that were developed, and there was another set of countries in the world that were developing, And developed countries had responsibilities to take climate action, and developing countries did not. So the like-minded developing countries, for example, they're one of the most likely to be bringing up CBDR as a claim, and they are making references to not just this, what sounds like a general idea, sure, everybody has responsibilities, but they're different. But often when that phrase is invoked, It is invoked to mean that you can take the countries of the world and divide them into two categories, and some of them are developed and some of them are developing. But I think that something that people don't always remember about the developing countries and the moment of 1992 is that in 1992, that was a moment when the countries that later were identified as emerging powers really did not look like emerging powers. So the climate agreement, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, which is signed in 1992, is really negotiated over the two years that the Soviet Union is falling apart and Russia emerges out of it. And there's this major change in the globe. China has the protests in Tiananmen Square just a few years before that. And there are a lot of questions at that point about whether China might be about to undergo that same kind of disruption and change that the Soviet Union is undergoing. And nobody's looking at China as any kind of major model, or and nor does it have the kind of growth rates that it has later. Brazil is still just a little bit beyond military government. It has hyperinflation. It's nobody's idea of a world power. And South Africa is still apartheid. You know, so if you think about that moment, it is a moment when it really does make some sense to make this differentiation and to say there is a set of countries that are just in a very different situation than this set of countries that are undergoing much more disruption, are much more clearly structurally disadvantaged economically. And the countries that are still invoking CBDR in 2020 are countries that are still trying to keep that understanding of the world as divided into two, 
even though many of them that are the most vociferous are the ones that many people would argue really should be on the side of, if not developed countries, in some kind of intermediate third category. And they're resisting that. Would you say that the majority of developing countries still support that principle, though? Or has it really weighed? I think it really has changed. And it's changed in a couple of ways. Certainly one of the ways it's changed is with EOSIS and the small island developing states and countries like the African states that see themselves as being really quite seriously vulnerable to climate change itself. These are countries that are now some of the ones that tend to be speaking with the strongest language in the negotiations about the need for everyone to take climate action. And in fact, if you go and look at the list of countries that claim that they're going to be making more ambitious promises for the next climate conference, now in 2021, many of them are exactly these countries that are planning on taking a lot of action, but most of that action is going to be adaptation action because they're going to be needing to adapt to the changes that climate change is, is forcing on them. But there's also a set of countries in the developing world, you know, Costa Rica would come to mind as a very prominent example of this kind of country that really have something of a tradition quite a strong tradition, actually, of environmental protection domestically. A number of Latin American countries are in this position. Brazil is not at the moment, but maybe 15 years ago looked more like this. Are countries that say we've made some important domestic advances on not just climate change, but also deforestation and other kinds of environmental issues, and we're ready to come and be part of this set of negotiations to play our part. So the Paris Agreement had what was called a high ambition coalition, which was across the developed and developing country divide. And that high ambition coalition had a lot of developing countries, including a country like Brazil, that said, we need to be more ambitious on climate change, including some of us that need to take climate action. So I think there's a real differentiation among the developing countries. And what's always interesting to me is how many of the developing countries are actually more willing to take environmental action at home than they are willing to sign up to it internationally. And I would say you can see elements of this in China, for example, which has really made a number of strides in terms of environmental regulations and controls at home, and yet is sometimes a very constructive partner in, in global environmental negotiations and sometimes is not. And Brazil is a country, this is, Brazil is where I do research, so this is where I keep coming back to Brazil. But Brazil is another country which sometimes is a very constructive participant and sometimes is not, but which actually has quite a good record or had quite a good record on reducing deforestation that it was proud of, but it just didn't want to make international commitments about it. And so there's all kinds of positions with respect to environmental issues generally and climate change in particular. So we have spoken about the different negotiating groups and how the positions and priorities of developing countries can vary quite substantially. Is it relevant at all to talk about developing countries as one group and developing country priorities in the context of the climate negotiations? Well, they do come to the negotiations with some demands in common. And the demands in common tend to be the kinds of demands that they were making in common back in 1992 and 1997. Probably the most consistent demand that they have made over these years is for finance from developed countries. And it's kind of taken different forms. So in the first decade of climate negotiations, when there was a lot of focus on mitigation and reducing greenhouse gas emissions, a lot of their demands were in the terms of give us technology transfer, you know, these kinds of reductions of emissions are expensive or they require technology, you hold these technologies, you have these resources, help us do the mitigation if we're going to solve this global problem that you historically created. And then as you moved into the first decade of the 2000s, the demand was really, it, it became increasingly a demand for finance for adaptation. Climate change problem is going to require us to make costly changes to adapt to climate change. We might have to change some of our infrastructure or change some of our agricultural practices. We might have to make some expensive decisions to do renewable energy back when it was still quite expensive. So we need funds for that kind of adaptation. 
And then in this most recent decade, it's been more a set of demands, now a new set of demands, as we see the impacts of climate change, as they become more serious. It now is increasingly framed in terms of loss and damage, that there are irreversible losses from climate change that really can't be adapted to. And there's still an argument here that developed countries have really historically created this problem with their greenhouse gas emissions all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, and that those historic emissions of greenhouse gases developed developed countries, and that they now have those resources where they need to pay for the consequences of their development. And especially, as I say, it's now increasingly turning to this discussion of loss and damage, of the irreversible changes. You know, the most extreme versions of them, of course, would be from the small island developing states or small island states generally that are likely to be physically disappearing as nation states. And that's not just a physical loss, but that's also a cultural loss from the loss of, you know, a human territory, a place of belonging, a way of being, a community. And so there's a, you know, these are both tangible and intangible losses that they've now been seeking compensation for. And they never feel like the money has been enough. And in fact, when you look at how even the developed countries count the cost of mitigation, adaptation, loss and damage, you can see that the resources that developed countries are spending on themselves are not anywhere near enough to cope with those. And there's certainly not enough to cope with the much larger costs of addressing mitigation, adaptation, and loss and damage in, in the developing world. So that goes on being a common interest and a common demand that I think at some level will hold this set of countries together, certainly for the next decade of climate negotiations. How forthcoming have developed countries been when it comes to meeting these demands or, or asks? One of the big focuses that countries have turned to in, in the last decade is really this question of, well, how, how do we measure this? Because usually the requests that developing countries make is that they're looking for new and additional money. They don't want money that was going to be spent on some development project now being given to them for climate adaptation. They want new money. They want the development project and they want the climate adaptation project. And they have yet to really agree a consistent set of reporting practices that will let countries agree on how much money is being given. So when the European Union counts or the OECD counts how much climate aid they're giving, they come out with sums of money that might be 10 times what India counts when it looks at those same funds. And there are real good reasons for that because at some level the question of like how much climate finance is there really depends on knowing, well, what is climate finance? You know, if you're building a wind power plant, is that climate finance or is that electricity infrastructure? Or is it both? Or is climate finance just how much more it would cost to build wind power over natural gas? How do you think about what's the increment here that's actually climate finance as opposed to other kinds of finance? And because so much of adaptation and loss and damage and even mitigation are really also infrastructure projects or development projects of various kinds, you know, teasing that out and deciding what of that is climate finance. And then you still have the question of like, what's new and additional and wasn't going to be given before. And there you have to know what the plans originally were in order to know if you're getting additional funds that you were not getting before. But that's hard to measure. And so there is not at the moment any kind of single accounting of how much climate finance there is. I can assure you that developing countries are quite sure that it's not enough. And when you look at India saying, for example, that it would need $3 trillion dollars of investment to really decarbonize its economy in a way that does not interfere with its growth prospects, Well, nobody's offering anything remotely like three trillion dollars, and India is just one country. And so part of the question, too, is, well, of that three trillion dollars, how much of it should India pay for? 
and how much of it should be paid for by Great Britain or someone else. And so this is not surprising to me that even though these countries started working on these issues back in 1990, it is not surprising to me that 30 years later, these are issues that are still unresolved because they are very complicated issues. But I'm afraid that until they get resolved, the global climate negotiations are going to continue to be the contentious, divided projects that they are. COP26 is due to be held next year. Are these priorities, climate finance, adaptation, and loss and damage, critical priorities for developing countries ahead of this meeting too? Those continue to be major issues, but I think there's also the COP26, rather, is the conference that is supposed to be the five years after Paris conference. And if you know how the Paris conference works, it's supposed to have more ambitious national pledges every five years. So if you are one of the developing countries and you're very concerned about the effects of climate change, one of the other things you're looking for from COP26 is you're looking for much more ambitious promises from developed countries and probably also from developing country big emitters for the kinds of commitments that they're going to be making. And I looked just before I knew I was going to do this podcast and I looked and I saw that it's 103 countries that have said that they're planning on doing more ambitious promises for COP26. Well, those 103 countries account for 15% of global emissions. So we're waiting for actually a fairly small set of countries, none of which have made any promises about what they're going to do, but are the world's biggest emitters. And if they don't make more ambitious promises in, in COP26, then we are actually locking in another at least five years, if not more, of higher carbon emissions and increasing climate change. And there is a set of developing countries the most vulnerable ones, the least developed countries, the African countries, the small island developing states that really do want to see more climate action. Other developing countries that are more the targets, the Chinas, the Indias, the Brazils, the Saudi Arabias are not so much in agreement with that, unless it means asking the US and Europe and countries like that to do more. So they are in agreement with that piece of it. But otherwise, I think it's another conference with the same agenda, really, that we've had for the last while. It's a finance agenda. It's a loss and damage agenda. Spain left a number of things unresolved, especially the finance agenda. And those issues are coming back. And I don't think developing countries have very different demands to make in um, 2021 than they did in earlier years. How successful would you say that developing countries have been when it comes to pushing their priorities in the UN climate negotiations? And are there any instances where they have been particularly successful? I think one can clearly point to topics that have gone on to the global agenda that would not be there had developing countries not put them there. So loss and damage is a really good example of that. Loss and damage is an issue that developed countries would never have put on the agenda, in part because it really implies their liability for these changes, these irreversible problems. And that's not an issue that they want to talk about. So you can point to loss and damage, even adaptation too. Adaptation was a topic that developing countries were pushing at a time when many developed countries and actually many environmentalists only wanted to talk about mitigation. Now, What I would say is that their success has been more, though, in an agenda-setting role than in them necessarily getting what they want to out of that agenda. So even though developing countries can put finance on the agenda, which, believe me, would not play anything like the kind of role that it plays had they not been insisting on it in every negotiation every year since 1990, but they don't necessarily get the answers that they want So it's clear that the negotiations are different because they're there. They also are the countries that have often made the most persuasive moral claims. They bring the language of environmental justice. The countries that have done the least to create this problem are the countries that are being hurt by it. They bring language about suffering. They are feeling the climate crisis and willing to talk about it and willing to make demands in moral terms about what they're owed that I think have often made moments in the negotiations quite uncomfortable. 
but they have tended to be quite effective in terms of changing the tone of the conferences, creating at least among some countries a sense of a moral obligation to do something. And those are discourses that they've brought that, again, I don't think would be so present in the negotiations without them. This is not to say that their claims of environmental justice have brought them environmental justice, but I think the negotiations would look different if those claims were not there. Thank you so much, Catherine. This was really interesting. Interesting for me too, so. <laughs> well, that was a fascinating listen. And that is it for this episode of The Climate Briefing. Before we go... Anna, who's still with me in the Chatham House Media Studio, would just like to say a few words about our glorious past colleague, Johanna Tilkanen, who is no longer on the climate briefing. Yeah, that's true. I mean, she's still at Chatham House, but um, she was needed on another project, so she won't be co-hosting this podcast anymore. So, too bad, listeners. I guess you're stuck with Ben and I, <laughs> but we'll hope you'll keep on listening anyway. Absolutely, yeah. All that remains for me to say then is all of the standard housekeeping we hope that you enjoyed this episode if you did we would very much appreciate it if you could leave a review and a, and a rating on itunes because that helps people find us and tell all your friends because word of mouth is is one of the best ways of getting podcasts noticed you can subscribe to the climate briefing on whichever podcast app you use or you can find all of the previous episodes on the chatham house website and if you want to find out a bit more about the work that Chatham House does on environmental issues, then you can follow the Energy, Environment and Resources programme on Twitter at ch underscore environment. Until next time, I've been Ben Horton. And I'm Anna Weber. And this has been The Climate Briefing. Mm-hmm.